Romans chapter 8. If you want to use the Bible provided for you, we will be on page 944. If you don't know me, my name is Jake Bishop. I actually grew up here at West Park uh, and served here in the student ministry for, uh, for a while. And then last year, me and my wife moved up to Louisville, Kentucky, so that I could be a student at Southern Seminary. But it is an honor to be here with you this morning. If I don't know you, I'd love to meet you here after the service. But while you're turning, I want to tell you a story. And it's not a story that I wrote. It's actually a story that has been called by some the greatest short story ever written. It was written in 1886 by a man named Leo Tolstoy. And the story is called, How Much Land Does a Man Need? How Much Land Does a Man Need? Well, this story is about Payam. And Payam is a peasant living in Russia. So he's a peasant. He doesn't have much. But at one point in the story, at the very beginning, Payam is talking to his wife and some friends. And he just makes an idle boast. He says, you know, if I only had land... If I only had land, then not even the devil himself could tempt me. I'd have nothing to fear if I only had land. Well, as the story goes, the devil is in Payam's kitchen. And he is sitting behind the stove. And he hears Payam make this idle boast. And he takes it as a challenge. So, as the story goes on, Payam begins to acquire land. And he acquires more land. He acquires more land. He keeps upgrading, but it's never enough. Finally, towards the end... Payam hears this rumor about a tribe on the eastern part of Russia, and he hears that this tribe is selling land for pennies for the acre. Pennies for the acre. All he needs is a thousand rubles. And so he sells everything he has, gathers up a thousand rubles, and goes to visit this tribe. When he gets there, he finds the tribe, he meets the chief, he makes a, a peace offering to this chief, and they accept him in. And he says, Chief, I hear that you were selling land for a thousand rubles. And the chief looks at him and says, yeah, you want to come see it? They say, okay. So they walk up to the top of this hill and they look out and the land is more beautiful than Payam could have ever imagined. Just lush, green, amazing land. And he says, okay, a thousand rubles. How much do I get? And the chief looks at him and says, we don't know. He said, well, how do you not know? He said, well, here's how it works. We have plenty of land to give away. So here's what we do. You give us a thousand rubles. Tomorrow at sunrise, you start walking. However much land you can walk around before sunset, that is all your land. But here's the catch. If you don't get back to the starting point before sunset, we keep your money and you lose your land. Payam thinks about it and says, easy, right? He starts doing the math. He says, a thousand rubles. I could probably walk 35 miles. Easy. That's easy land. So they shake hands, they they decide, okay, tomorrow we do it. The next day, they wake up before the sunrise, and they come in to stand up on this hill, and and, and the chief takes off his hat, and he throws it down on the ground. He says, this will be our starting point, and this will be our finishing point. You must return here before sunset. And then he hands him a small shovel, a spade. He says, you dig a hole every time you make a turn, and that's how we'll know what's your land. So I like to imagine that he's basically running the bases in a baseball game, right? He's going to go to first, dig a hole, second, third, and then back to home before sunset. And so he takes off. The sun rises. He takes off. He goes. He starts doing the calculations in his head. And he says, okay, now is the time. I need to get down and dig a hole. So he's about to dig the hole, but then he looks up and he sees these trees. And they're filled with fruit. So he says, okay, I have to, I have to get those, right? So he goes on and he, he makes sure he gets the trees. And then he's about to do it again. He looks and he says, oh, well, there's a river. I want that river. So then he goes on, he makes sure to get across the river. And then he's like, okay, I have to dig the hole now. So he digs the hole. 
goes to second base, same exact thing happens. Well, I need that, well, I need that, well, I need that. And he keeps walking, digs a hole again. Finally, he gets to third, and he looks up, and he realizes that he has made a huge mistake. The sun is starting to set, and he is far off. He is far off from his finish line. Well, he decides, okay, my only choice is to run. (laughs) So he starts throwing stuff off and running as fast as he can. And he's starting just to to feel like he's just starting to struggle. His body's hurting, but then he begins to see the tribe and see the chief up on the hill ahead of him. So he runs, and he runs, and he runs. But then he's about halfway there, he realizes the sun is set. It's over. And just the, the, he's just distraught. He drops to the ground. He's sobbing. He can't believe it. But all of a sudden, he hears this. He says, here's, pay him. Keep running. <laughs> keep running. We can see the sun up here. You got to keep running. So he pushes himself up, and he keeps running. He is running as hard as he possibly can. He gets to the hill. He sprints up it. He sees the cap. He dives and grabs the cap right before the sun sets. And the tribe, they go crazy. And all the time, of this, they've never seen someone get that much land. The chief is going crazy. You've got so much land. And they go to bend down to pull pay him up to celebrate. And they realize he's not moving. And they realize he's not breathing. And they realize there's a little blood coming out of his mouth. In that struggle to earn that land, pay him had died. And this is how, with the happiest ending ever, here's how the story ends. It says... His servant picked up the spade and dug a grave long enough for Payam to lie in and buried him in it, six feet from his head to his heels. That was all the land he needed. What's the point? What's the point? Here's the point. I think this perfectly captures the hopelessness of our world. Perfectly captures the hopelessness of our world. Because no matter who you are, no matter what you have, you can know two things. You're going to suffer and you're going to die. <laughs> you're going to suffer, and you're going to die. Woody Allen put it this way, and I think it's pretty clever. He said, life is hard, and then you die, right? That summarized it pretty well. Life is hard, and then you die. When our passage this morning, we see that that could not be further from the truth for the Christian. <laughs> the Christian, the future of a Christian is bursting with hope. As a young child goes to bed on Christmas Eve, and is filled with hope for what comes in the morning. That is the hope that the Christian has, hope for the future. Paul tells us that we have the hope of future glory. So let's read it. Romans 8, verses 18 through 30. Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 30. It says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. 
And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Paul's main point here in the passage can be found right there in that first verse, verse 18. The main point is this, if you want to write it down. Christian, the sufferings of your life are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be one day revealed to you. Let me say it again. Christian, the sufferings of your life are not worth comparing to the glory that is to one day be revealed to you. To support this main point, I want to look at three points from the passage. We see in this passage that we can persevere through our suffering because, number one, Christians have hope. Number two, Christians have help. And number three, Christians have a guarantee. One, Christians have hope. Two, Christians have help. And three, Christians have a guarantee. So let's look at point one. Christians have hope. If you've been here the last couple weeks, you've heard Joe and Chris do an amazing job amazing job of breaking down these first 16, first 17 verses. And we see in these first, the first 16 and a half verses of those 17, we see that it is good to be a Christian. We see that there is blessing after blessing after blessing for the Christian. We see that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. He tells us, Paul tells us that the Spirit dwells in us and that we have nothing to fear. And then he tells us the glorious news that we are children of God. But then it ends like this. Look at verse 16. It says this. It says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. But notice this. It says this. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So, Romans 8 has given us blessing after blessing after blessing, but then he ends it with this. Provided you suffer, you get all that. You get all that, provided you suffer. Glorification comes, provided you suffer. So what we see here is that Paul and the Bible as a whole are under no illusions that the Christian life will ever be easy. It is not, okay, I'm a Christian now, let's, let's, let me skip on into heaven and it's all going to be a breeze. Not at all. Paul knew that the Christian life always, 100% of the time, means suffering and then glory. That is always going to be the pattern. Suffering and then glory. And we know that will always be the pattern because that was the pattern for Jesus. And if we are united with him, we are going to go the way of Jesus. Suffering and then glory. It is always going to follow that pattern. So the Bible tells us, or it never tells us, that followers of Jesus won't suffer. The difference between a follower of Jesus, the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is not that one suffers and one does not. The difference is that a Christian has hope in their suffering. They have the hope of future glory in their, in their suffering. So let's look at it. Verse 18. It says this. It says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul says it clearly, you will suffer, but there is hope. In 1952, Florence Chadwick stepped out from Catalina Island to swim 26 miles from Catalina Island to the coastline of California. 
She steps out, she starts her swim, and on that day, the weather was horrible. She had some boats that were, that were going along beside her just for her safety. It had some trainers in it and her mom. And she couldn't even see the boats because the fog was so bad around her. But Florence, even in the fog, was able to swim for 15 hours straight. 15 hours. At that point, she looks up at, at her mom and yells to her in the boat and says, Mom, I can't do it anymore. <laughs> I can't do it. I'm done. And her mom says, Baby, you are so close. You just got to keep going. You just got to keep going. She swims another hour. And then finally she looks up at her mom again and says, I can't do it. Her, she just mentally couldn't do it. She physically couldn't do it. So her mom and her trainers pull her up into the boat. And when she gets in the boat, she realizes that she was a half mile from shore. A half mile. Next day they have a press conference. They ask her, Florence, you were a half mile away. What happened? And she said, all I could see was the fog. If only I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. Well, Florence wasn't a quitter. Florence was a competitor. And so two months later, she tries it again, steps out into the same water, and wouldn't you know it, the weather is identical. She can't see anything. Fog all around her. But this time she finished. This time she finished. So they have the press conference, and they ask her, and they say, you just did this two months ago. What changed in two months? Was it training? Was it, was it a better strategy? What is it? And she said, I just kept my mind on the shore. <laughs> I just kept picturing the shore. Christians, we have a great hope. <laughs> we have a hope so great that Paul says our sufferings are not worth comparing to it. And one of the great tools that God gives us to persevere through suffering is a vision of what is to come. A vision of the shore. We look forward to the shore, the glory that awaits. And if we can see through the fog to the shore, that will comfort us and that will energize us even in our suffering. So what is our hope? What is the shore we look to? Let's walk through verses 19 through 23. It says this, verse 19. For the creation waits with, e waits with eager longing for the revealing of the Son of God. One day the sons of God... The Christians, all of us in the room who are Christians, everyone in the world who's a, who's a Christian, who's ever been a Christian, will be revealed. There will be a resurrection, and we will get our sinless resurrection bodies, and we will be who we were truly made to be. And our passage tells us that creation, creation, all of creation, eagerly waits for that day. Verses 20 and 21 say that creation itself, just like we have, has been negatively affected by sin. Even creation has been negatively affected by sin because we read in Genesis 3 that when Adam and Eve sinned, God cursed the earth. But in this passage, we hear, hear of the hope. We learn that one day the curse will be broken. And verse 21 says that that day will be when the children of God are revealed. That is when creation will be set free from its bondage. So we read this in verse 22. It says, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So creation is waiting, and creation is groaning, and it is waiting for the curse to be broken. And this image that Paul gives us here is so, so helpful, so good, because he, he compares it to childbirth. Now think of, think of the meaning there. Childbirth is pain that is filled with hope right? It is pain with the hope that soon you will hold your beautiful child. It is the same pattern we see over and over again. Pain, but the promise of hope. 
We see that again and again in this passage. So what do we know so far? We know that we have rebelled against God, and because of our sin, creation was cursed. So that means that the trees, that means that the stars, that means that your dog were all cursed because of our sin. They were cursed because of us. Now why is that? How is it that your sin affects your dog? How can that happen? How can, it, how can your sin affect the trees? Well, I love the way that Charles Spurgeon put it. He envisions it like this. He envisions uh, creation as a glorious orchestra. And every part of creation has its notes to play. The wind, the stars, the clouds, the waves, they all have their part to play in this glorious orchestra that glorifies the God who created it. And there was one person, one group, the, the, the humans, the people, the ones made in God's image, they were the ones who were going to stand in front as the conductor, right? They were going to exercise dominion. They were the conductor. But here's what the Bible tells us, that God set up this glorious orchestra, and then the conductor never showed. The conductor defaulted. The conductor didn't do his job. And so creation waits for the conductor to show up, <laughs> creation waits for its conductor and it groans as it waits but it's not just creation that's groaning look at verse 23 it says and not only creation but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies it isn't just creation that groans we groan and we know that right we know that we know that life is hard and this groaning that the passage speaks of it is frustration that we feel, frustration that we feel over the effects of sin that we see in our life. It's frustration over that. We are united with Christ. We are children of, of God. We have the Holy Spirit, yet we continue to feel the effects of living in a fallen world. Theologians, and maybe you've heard this phrase even the last two weeks, theologians say that we are living, Christians are living in the already but not yet. The already but not yet. And here's what that means. When you, if you were a, a Jew living in the Old Testament time and you read the prophets, this is how they thought that creation or this is how they thought history would play out. They thought there was the age, the current age, the present age, the age filled with sin, the one that we obviously live in now, right? The, the, this age that is filled with sin. And then they knew that a Messiah would come and they thought there would be this hard break where the Messiah comes and brings in the age to come, the resurrection age. So we have the present age, the Messiah comes, and then the resurrection happens. But something crazy happened that no one expected. The age to come came early. So we have the present age filled with sin, and the age to come burst into it. Jesus comes, lives a perfect life, dies the death that we deserve, and then he resurrects. He defeats death. But when he resurrects, he's still surrounded by sinful people in a sinful world. And so here's what that means. If you are a Christian united with Christ, theologians say that you live in the overlap of the ages. You are a citizen of the new creation. You have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit. You are united with Christ, but you are still living in a sinful world. And so that is why you sin. How is it that you can be united with Christ and still sin? That is why. How is it that you can be united with Christ and still suffer? That is why you are living in the overlap of the ages, longing for the day when he will come again 
longing for that day. Paul says in verse 23 that we have the first fruits of the Spirit. The first fruits he's talking about are the first fruits of the harvest. If you, let's say you have apple trees, and you go out and you see the first apples come on those apple trees. Well, you would pick those and you would celebrate them, right? Because that was hope. It was hope. If, if the tree's bearing the first apples, you know that the harvest is coming. But there's also going to be frustration in that because it means that the harvest is not here yet. And that is where we are. In the already but not yet. We have the first fruits of the Spirit, but the harvest is not here. So we groan. We groan. And we have to admit that living in the already but not yet is hard. <laughs> it is hard. It's easy to look at ourselves and it's easy to look at the world around us and absolutely lose hope. Allie and I, our favorite TV show to watch is Fixer Upper. Anyone watch that, Fixer Upper? Great show, right? And so if you don't know the show, uh, in the show there, there's Chip and Joanna Gaines. And they, they, the, the, the thing of the show is that they take the worst house in the best neighborhood of Waco, Texas, and turn it into their client's dream home, which is actually what it says every single episode. And it's just ingrained in there, isn't it? Because I've seen so many episodes. But in this, in, in this show, and I love it. We watch it all the time, and I love it. But there's something that frustrates me so much. Every episode, they show their clients three homes, and they're all run down and ugly. And every time the client pulls up at the house and they show their reaction and the client goes, oh, no way. No, no, this can't be the house. No way. And here's my reaction. First of all, you signed up for a show called Fixer Upper, okay? <laughs> the show is called Fixer Upper. They have to have something to do. The house isn't going to be pretty already. But here's my other reaction because I've seen every episode four times over five seasons. I say, it's Joanna Gaines, right? It is Joanna Gaines. She always comes through. That house, no matter what it looks like right now, that house is going to be beautiful. I can guarantee it. I can guarantee it. Is that you? Do you look at yourself and look at the world and say, no way. There's no hope for me. No, no, there's no hope for this world. Have you watched the news lately? There is no hope for this world. And here's what I would say. It's God, right? It's God. And here's the thing. He's already proven himself. You remember when Jesus came and Jesus died and there was hopelessness there for three days, but then what did he do? He rose again. He's already proven himself. He has already proven himself. And he has promised that he's going to turn you and the world you live in into something beautiful. You want to know how beautiful? He is going to turn this world and you into something so beautiful that he is going to come here and live with us for eternity. Look at Revelation 21. Revelation 21, it says this. This is the next to last chapter of the Bible. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. 
I am making all things new. Isn't that amazing? That's our hope. A new creation where God will dwell with us. He will wipe the tears from our eyes. There will be no death. There will be no mourning. There will be no crying. And there will be no pain. Our passage says that when he comes, we will receive resurrection bodies. Bodies without sin. And we will live in a new creation without sin. When you go hiking in the Smokies and you get up to the top and you get on the ledge and you look over, it's beautiful, right? It takes your breath away. But that is the Smokies tainted by sin. (laughs) One day, that sin will be vanquished. We can't even imagine how beautiful, how amazing, how wonderful our hope is. The Smokies now, when you get to the top, that is only an appetizer of what is to come. It is an appetizer for the new creation. What a great hope that is. More wonderful than we can ever imagine. Before we move on, let me point out one more thing from Revelation 21. It says that the new creation is coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. As I was studying this, I was thinking, the best moment of my life happened right here. At uh, December 20th, 2015 at 6.30 p.m., Allie came through those doors. Allie came through those doors and walked down and we were married. And that right there was was an appetizer for eternity. That moment was an appetizer for eternity. Every time you're at a wedding and you see that, that is an appetizer of what is to come. But here's something I couldn't stop thinking about. When we were engaged, I thought about that moment of her walking down the aisle every single day. I thought about what it would be like to be married to her every single day. I got so impatient that we moved the wedding up six months, okay? (laughs) I couldn't wait. Here's my question. How often do you think about what is to come? Our hope is that God is going to live with us for eternity on a redeemed creation where we have our redeemed bodies. How often do you think about that? I've already said that that's one of the greatest tools he gives us. It's a vision for the future. That is one of the greatest tools he gives us to persevere through suffering. How often do you even think about that? Ever? We should. Use it. Use that tool. Put it deep down. Drive it deep down into your soul so that when suffering comes, you will not be shaken. Drive that deep into your soul. Let's move on to point two. Point two, Christians have help. Christians have help. Verses 26 and 27 say this. It says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not what to know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows, that, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Let me ask you, do you ever struggle to pray? Anyone? Do you ever struggle to pray? Do you ever get down on your knees to pray and not even know what to pray for? Do you ever worry that you're praying for the wrong thing or worry that you can't discern God's will for your life? We've all been there, right? We've all been there. And as Christians, we encounter two problems in our prayer that the Bible shows us. Two problems. Number one, we don't know what to pray for. And number two, we often pray for the wrong things. All of us, we don't know what to pray for, and we often pray for the wrong things. But the good news here is that we have a helper. We have a helper in our weakness. His name is the Holy Spirit. Joe, two weeks ago, did an amazing job showing more about the Holy Spirit, really showing kind of his role and what he does and how he helps Christians living in a sinful world. But here we see just one example of how he helps us. 
in Scripture, we find two truths that on the surface seem like they're contradictions, but they're actually complementary. On one hand, we see James 4.2 and verses like it, and they say that we have not because we ask not. So Scripture is clear that there are some things that we don't get because we never ask for them. There are things that God won't give us until we ask for them. But on the other hand, think about this. If God gave you everything you asked for, would that be a good thing? No, right? The great theologian Garth Brooks has a song about that that was pretty popular, (laughs) right? Sometimes we're thankful for unanswered prayers. We're thankful that God didn't give us what we want. So there's this tension. There's this tension. But the passage tells us there is nothing to fear. The Holy Spirit is there to help John Calvin put it this way. He said, God so tempers the outcome of events according to his incomprehensible plan that the prayers of the saints, which are a mixture of faith and error, are not nullified. Our passage tells us that we are children of God. You know what children do? They ask their parents for things that aren't good for them. They ask their parents for things that aren't good for them. And the most loving thing that a parent can do in that situation is say no. (laughs) Is say no. But our passage tells us that we are children of God, and that is a glorious truth. Because think about this. Think about this. If a young, if a young girl, she wakes up in the middle of the night and she has a stomach ache, what is she going to do? She's going to get out of bed. She's going to shuffle down the hallway. She's going to come into her parents' room, and she's going to whisper, and she's going to say, Mom, I need you. Dad, I need you. Our passage, by calling us children of God, is showing us that we have that kind of access to the God of the universe. God guides the galaxies, but then he bends down to hear every one of his children's prayers. That is amazing. That shows us that even if the answer has to be no, it means that he never ignores you, and it means that he never forgets you because you are his child. So you're going to pray for the wrong things. We all are. But the, the message here is to pray. It's to pray. The, the God of the universe is your father. Pray to him. A father wants to hear from his child, and a child wants to talk to their father. So pray. Pray. Point three, our final point. Christians have a guarantee. Christians have a guarantee. And Christians love this next verse. Right? Christians love this next verse. Romans 8, 28. It's maybe the second most popular verse in all the New Testament behind John 3, 16. And that's for good reason. Romans 8, 28 is like a bomb shelter. When everything is chaos around you, you can go into the structure of Romans 8, 28, and you can be safe no matter what is going on, even as the bombs explode. And we see clearly, we see clearly that this, this, this verse is one of the tallest trees in the forest of Scripture. But here's the problem. I don't think that many of us fully understand it. I don't think many of us fully grasp the meaning of this verse. Because we can see the tree, but we forget about its roots. roots. And just like if you go up to a tree, you can't know about it unless you know about its roots. You can't fully know it. You can't fully know Romans 8.28 unless you know this passage that's around it. You can't divorce it from its context. And so let's look here. Because I, I have been so, so convicted by this. So let's read it. Verse 28, it says this, it says, it says that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purposes. That's amazing news for sufferers. Paul says, here's encouragement in your suffering. 
No matter what, God is working all things for your good. From the smallest, most insignificant thing that you don't even notice to the glorious mountaintops of your life, God is working them all for your good. Even your suffering, God is working it all for your good. The Bible in Acts 4 says the most, the, the, the worst sin, the, the worst thing ever to happen, innocent, Jesus dying on the cross, being murdered, Acts 4 says, even that works for good. God works all things for good. And sometimes, sometimes we get to see the promise of Romans 8.28 play out right in front of our eyes. Sometimes you can look back and see God's hand and see how he was working for your good. Think of Joseph. Joseph in Genesis, right? He's sold into slavery by his brothers. He then gets accused of something he didn't do, gets thrown into prison. He gets forgotten in the prison cell. But then we see at the end that all that happened, God sovereignly made all that happen so that he would rise to power in Egypt and save his people from a famine. And Joseph, at the end, is talking to his brothers, and he's able to say this. He says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. There are times in your life where you'll be able to look back and see God's hand, see how he was working for your good. And when that happens, praise him for that. Praise him, because that is grace. Praise him for the grace that he has shown you. But this morning, I want us to see that that's not the promise of Romans 8.28. The promise is not that you will always be able to see God's hand in an hour or a day or a month or a year or a decade. That is not the promise. That is not the promise here. I was convicted preparing for this lesson because in my life, when suffering comes, here's what I do. I pull out a stopwatch, I look at God, and I say, your promise to me is that you are working all things for my good. Here, I'll time you, right? I'll time you, and you'll work it for good. Or maybe I'm talking to a, to a senior in high school, and that senior has this dream college he wants to go to, and he doesn't get in. And I look at him and I say, you know what that means? God's working for your good. That means that there's a better college out there for you. Is that true? It might be. It could be. But if that kid gets rejected by every college in America, did God forget about him? Did God, did God break his promise? Is Romans 8.28 just done if he never gets into any college? Absolutely not. <laughs> Absolutely not. Because here's the thing, church, the promise here is not that you will always be able to trace God's hand. The promise is not that you will always be able to do that. The promise is that one day in eternity, you will stand on the mountaintop of eternity and you will be able to see how every detail, no matter how large or small, was always working for your good. That's the promise. That is the promise right there. And that truth, if you really think about it, that truth is much more glorious than how we usually take Romans 8, 28. That's much better than getting into the college you wanted to go to. That is much more glorious. We see here that God is working for our eternal good, not just good in our circumstances. Working for our eternal good, not just good in the circumstances of our life. Verse 29 tells us that God's goal for us is not good circumstances. It is that we will be conformed to the image of Jesus. So here's what you need to understand. Jesus Christ came to earth and he lived the perfect life that we could not live. 
He was a man of sorrows who lived a life of suffering and then he died the death that we deserved and suffered on the cross. But he did not suffer so that you will never suffer. He suffered so that when you suffer, you will become more like him. He suffers that you'll become more like him. Everything in your life is working for your good. Everything in your life is working to make you more like Jesus. That's the promise. That is the promise we see here in Romans 8, 28. But now we have to ask a hard question. We have to ask a hard question. Who's this promise for? Who's this promise for? And I have to ask it because it says it right there in the passage. Who's this for? The verse says it is exclusively for those who love God. God is not working for the good of everyone. That's just the truth that we see here. God is not working for the good of everyone. He is working for the good of Christians. At our church in Louisville, we've been volunteering in the nursery. And this is my first exposure ever to being around one-year-olds. And I learned really quickly that they fall a lot. And it happens over and over and over again. But I also learned that I have this reflex that when they fall, I pick them up and they're crying and I pick them up and I sit them on my lap and I hold them close. And what do I say? I say, it'll be all right. It'll be okay. Isn't that our reflex to anyone who's suffering? We see someone suffering and we say, it'll be all right. It'll be okay. Your your friend, they're suffering and you go up and you put your hand on their shoulder and you say, it'll be okay. But can you know that? Can you know that it'll all be okay? Absolutely, if that person is a Christian. If that person is a Christian, you can 100% know that it will be all right. It will be all right. But if you are here today and you you are not a Christian, I have to just say, just because we see it here in God's word, that there's really two ways you can take this promise. First of all, You can see this promise and see that God is working for the good of those who love him. And it is possible that if you die without Christ, then every detail of your life was not working for your good. It was working for your ultimate destruction. Every detail of your life was working for your ultimate destruction. That's one one option. That's one option here. The other option is this. Maybe you're here today and you can think back. You can think back to your life and you can see how every moment God was working to this moment or to the moment that you realize that you can't earn your salvation. The moment you realize that you are a sinner who needs Jesus to take your place. Maybe every moment of your life, everything, God was working that all for your ultimate good when you realize it is only through Jesus that you can have eternal life. So I beg of you today, I beg of you today, If you don't know Jesus, pray to him. Pray to him. He came. He experienced the suffering that you experienced, and he died to save his people. Tell him, say, I I know I am a sinner. I know I can't earn my salvation. I know I need you to take my place, and I am sorry for my sin. I am sorry that I have rebelled against you. Do that this morning. Do that. It is only if you are in Christ that you can know that it is ultimately all working for your good. That is the only way that you can claim the promise of Romans 8, 28, is if you are in Christ. So do that here this morning. Put your faith in him. I want to end and close by showing one last glorious truth for all of us. One last glorious truth for Christians. Look at our last two verses. Unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to get into them like I want to, but I'm just going to read verse 30 here. 
It says this, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, I'd love to preach a a message on each one of those words, but I can't. So here's what I want you to see. Look at the passage. It says this. It says, he predestined us. He called us, and he justified us. And they're all in the past tense, just like they should be. These are all things that have already happened for the Christian. But look at that last word. He glorified us. He glorified us. Commentators say this is one of the most amazing verses in all the Bible because Paul is willing to say after all this we've talked about that if you are in Christ, he has glorified you. It's done. He puts it in the passage. It's done. If you are in Christ, no one can take that away. Not Satan, not your circumstances, not your suffering. Nothing can take that away. If you are in Christ, it is already done. The great theologian Jonathan Edwards once wrote a sermon where he shared three things a Christian can be certain of. Number one, your bad things will work out for your good. Number two, your good things can never be taken away. And number three, your best things are yet to come. 